Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you. Good day to you, Stephen. And I, I can't start today without sending out our thoughts and prayers to to those in Southern California who are who are again uh, fighting Mother Nature in in some horrific conditions, aren't they? Absolutely, Mitch. It's really quite ironic. Um, I was personally impacted by that one. Uh, My daughter goes to school in Ojai at the Wild Tennis Academy. And as you know, and most of our listeners know, um, Ojai experienced a well, they got a real lucky break because uh, the fire really encircled the Ojai Valley, uh, and I, I really feel for everyone there. Uh, the the students were displaced as a result of the fire, but mostly due to air quality. And now, as a result of all of the clearing of the trees and the brush, and uh, it is just in essence set up, I guess, a slope, right, a natural slope, and the water has no place to go. It has, and I think we forget that you know, in so many ways, Mother Nature has a balance and. And the, the, the vegetation and the trees and the undergrowth helps hold the, the topsoil in place. And then when you have the fires, as we did in Southern California, where it clears so much of that off, then you get rainfall the way they've had over the past week, and there's nothing to hold it there. And over a certain slope, it just starts like, a, like an avalanche in the mountains – uh, that we see with snow, the same thing happens with mud and debris, and it's completely wiped out a section of of the 101 between Santa Barbara and Ventura and and Montecito. It it just extraordinary and shocking images that are coming from that area. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm with you on that one. Our thoughts and prayers do go out, and we. Um, uh, also give our thoughts and prayers to all of the first responders who are out working to uh, to stem and to uh, seek remedies for that. That's true. And, and, and unfortunately, it means that we should call everyone's attention to the previous programs we've done and that are archived on our voiceamerica.com business channel that, that alerts folks to how to prepare for natural disasters, how to respond or prepare for the legal response, which is getting your records together and uh, you know, concern about fraud and unscrupulous vendors who, who unfortunately come back into communities frequently from outside the communities to, to prey on people in their most vulnerable states. So a reminder to be cautious, seek legal help, uh, only work with trusted vendors Take advantage of the resources that the government and the communities will provide, and and you know when when major issues like total loss of homes and things like that are involved, do not hesitate to seek legal advice before you uh, enter into settlement negotiations and claims. Absolutely, Mitch. A laudable public service announcement, indeed. Well, you know, Mitch, last week we started with uh, New Year, New Laws, and we, of course, hinted that we'd probably pick up and continue with that topic. There certainly is no shortage of new laws, as is always the case when we flip the page or the calendar page each year. And, you know, there's a couple, Mitch, that uh, do relate to what we talked about last week because we talked about Prop 64 and we were talking about marijuana laws there's a couple other ones that uh, I think we should share and maybe discuss today also that have some overlap 
in the law of driving under the influence. And one involves uh, drivers for hire, and that would be, I'll use Lyft and Uber for now. I think they are, are they still the the king or the leaders in the driver for hire industry? I think by head and shoulders, they're, they're well above the others. So what's uh, happened in this arena, Mitch, is that uh, there has been a law passed that impacts uh, driving under the influence laws as it pertains to drivers, uh, Lyft or Uber drivers, so to speak, uh, so as to be consistent with previous or already set commercial driver laws, and that is that the blood alcohol content standard or the presumptive level for impairment for a commercial driver has been for many years 0.04. Uh, this new law now makes that commercial driver law applicable to drivers for hire in the Lyft or Uber or other uh, industry label uh, settings. And I have to say, I'm, I'm pleased to see that. Uh, you know, we're always cautious about over-regulation, uh, as we've done, as we've discussed in previous shows. Now, I'm I'm a fan of the barter economy. I believe that's that's part of the the beauty of America and a free market economy. So I'm I'm a a big fan of barter economy, but with that comes the inherent risk that some of the public protection regulations trail behind that type of an economy. And this is a perfect example. I, I cannot see any reason why that someone who's in the commercial uh, business of providing transportation shouldn't have to adhere to the higher standards. So, so I would have to applaud California for, for taking a look at that and adding this standard in as well. Yeah, I think it's a good move also in light of the prolific nature of the uh, the private drive-for-hire drive industry because uh, it is certainly uh, quite popular uh, in metropolitan city centers. Uh, and another one, Mitch, that is, I think you can say connected to this, uh, I reached it or we reached it last week, and that is uh, smoking marijuana in a vehicle. Uh, I addressed that when we talked about Prop 64 uh, and the liberalization uh, of rules connected to marijuana uh, did not lead to uh, the total demise of laws that impact marijuana. Um, it is still uh, an infraction or a fine now to smoke marijuana in a vehicle. So this one's going to be interesting, Mitch, and we'll look out to see uh, what develops here because as we've talked about in past shows, uh, Sometimes the police officer and driver interaction starts kind of mildly. You know, in other words, um, why did an officer approach a driver? And this might actually lead to uh, arrests, you know, based on under the influence with the, the initial reasonable suspicion potentially being an officer who views someone smoking marijuana. So uh, it does impact passengers. So uh, as driver, you're responsible for your passengers. So uh, be vigilant. Yeah, and I, I think that's a great one because mo I think it would be a logical assumption that even without reading the law specifically, most people would come to the conclusion that says, oh, well, I'm not allowed to drive down the road drinking an alcoholic beverage. Therefore, I'm not allowed to drive down the road imbibing uh, on a, in a marijuana uh, product. Uh, it, we remind everyone that it, it's not distinctive just to smoking and vaping, though. The driving under the influence goes to the effect of, of consumables as well. So you know, eating brownies or cookies or candies or gummies or all of those things could affect the driver. And now what we're saying is a reminder that the passenger is not supposed to smoke or consume while riding in a car either. Yeah, so, yeah. Similar to the, I guess, the uh, uh, remind us, Stephen, so if, if I'm a completely intoxicated passenger in the front seat of a car, so the Good Samaritan is giving the intoxicated, barely conscious, inebriated passenger a ride home. Uh, that's okay, right? But if they're letting them sit next to them drinking a beverage while they're giving them a ride home, 
that's never been okay or not okay under current law. And so we're applying the same rules to marijuana, right? Yeah, no, that's right. Direct crossover. So that would be the old uh, open container law. And right. so the, the driver would be, or the buck stops with the driver. The driver would be the one responsible for ensuring that passengers are not uh, drinking alcoholic beverages. So there's definitely a connection. And, you know, Mitch, that I should have uh, shared that that was authored, that bill was authored by Senator, State Senator Jerry Hill from San Mateo, my hometown. And as I uh, reviewed some of the background uh, and origin, uh, there was also a distracted driving component to that, which I think is directly connected to what you might have been talking about. You fill a car with several people, and if you've got uh, the smoking of marijuana kind of activity going on or vaping, there's a lot of movement, there's a lot of distraction, and uh, I'm told that comes with a lot of smoke. <laughs> you, right? you, you're trying to get back around to it. I can remember when we first talked about this, I mean, years ago, and we brought to image the Cheech and Chong movie, which right. maybe our younger listeners may not remember, but all the rest of our listeners will, of them being pulled over, these two actors being comedians being pulled over, and they roll down the window, and this just billowing cloud of marijuana smoke comes out, and he says, can I help you, officer? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that clip is probably still retrievable. <laughs> yes, that's great. And, and let me just, before we leave this one, Stephen, you, you touched on it, but let me just remind her that there's an element of the new law that also says no open container of marijuana products in a vehicle. So they've, they've attempted to truly mirror the alcoholic beverage uh, law. Uh, that one may get a little dicey because it's uh, unlike an alcoholic container that you can have a screw top, uh, you cannot have clip, flipped the lid on it. Uh, the packaging of, of some cannabis products, so what if you had a, a Tupperware you know, tub of cookies? Uh, does that have to be snapped shut? Could it be open? What if you have a partial product of, uh, let's say, gum or gummy bears that once you've opened it, it doesn't have a resealable component. So I think there's probably going to be some uncertainty of how that rolls out. But this is the reminder that it appears that what the law says is no use and no open container uh, and that you should be cognizant of that. Yeah, you're right, Mitch. And I think these residual laws that are connected with the passage of Prop 64 are really all designed to ensure responsibility, responsibility of handling and transportation of uh, what was once categorically uh, contraband. And the rules of engagement have changed now. And the other thing, Mitch, that I think is important, and I think you hit it, these are going to be matters of first impression. So ultimately what will happen is a case will get before the courts and they'll look at it and they'll need to interpret and apply the laws uh, as set. And if there's going to be ambiguity in the law such that it may not place people on notice, well, the proper testing ground for that is probably going to be in one of our courts. I think you're exactly right. I, it just It reminds me of the discussion we had uh, with cell phones and the first cases started coming out of how do you apply search and seizure and right of privacy to information captured in a cell phone. Can it be unlocked? Can it be uh, individual be forced to unlock it? And we talked about those first impression cases that came out about two years ago. And I, I think you're right. D don't you think, Stephen, it, it will probably take what about a year before some of these cases will percolate them their way up through the appellate courts? I think that's a fair estimate or forecast, Mitch. It will probably take a while. Yeah. So so we'll, no question, this will be an opportunity to revisit these issues as they uh, come about. Uh, we only have a couple seconds left in this, but I just wanted to also say that when we come back, Stephen, we should talk about a couple of the other traffic and commuting laws that change because this wasn't the only one. That's, That's true. true. When we come back, you're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We are continuing our discussion of new laws. It's a new year and with that brings new laws. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. <laughs> Thank you. 
Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. Established 44 years ago, we are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepardmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We are continuing our discussion of new laws. It is a new year after all, and with that brings new laws. And we started the program by talking about a couple of laws that impact driving under the influence and drivers for hire and the presumptive level of blood alcohol content in the context of Uber or Lyft-like uh, rides. Uh, Mitch, you want to sh- keep uh, on the topic of, of driving and safety? There's another one you wanted to tee up and talk about, right? Yeah, I thought this was fascinating. There's a new California law that requires riders of a commercial bus that are, uh, the way it's actually written that if the bus is equipped with seat belts, the driver is now required to alert uh, passengers that they must use the seat belts and failure to do so, both to warn and to comply, could be a $20 fine for a first offense and $50 for following offenses. And so I think what I'm a little unclear about the specific definition of the way they're using commercial bus. I believe that the limitation is before people get totally bent out of shape and say, wait a minute, I take the city bus to work every day and I don't see any seatbelts in that bus. Uh, I get on a bus at the airport with uh, the rental car and I don't see seatbelts. So I, I think the legislation is directed at, if you think of uh, a bad misnomer, but like the party buses, and I don't literally mean it from a party bus, but if you think of a commercial bus for private hire, which takes sports teams and private parties to places. These are these are these fancy buses. 
uh, and everyone I've ever been in, they absolutely have seat belts. And for that kind of a trip and use, you're now required to use a seat belt just as if you would in a private vehicle. And that's common sense as far as I'm concerned as well. Yeah, I agree with that. It's been a while since I've been on a commercial bus, uh, <clears throat> and I'm trying to recall whether or not seat belts were always used or even whether or not they existed. So I gather the person who catches the fine is the passenger and the bus driver or company? or I, I believe that's the way I read it, so that the bus the bus driver is required to notify passengers that they should use the seat belt, that seat belts are available and that they should use them or and that they are required to use them under state law and that passengers are required to comply okay good and so so it goes both ways so so that's again another i think a common sense uh, rule yeah, yeah. i think that, sorry Mitch i think that might be the one that has a a notice component to it as i read in other words the the driver needs to make, it might not be a verbal announcement necessarily, but there's communication to the passengers that places them on notice of the duty to put a seatbelt on, right? That's exactly, That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. And we've talked before about the the idea that you know, ignorance of the law is no excuse. In this case, they've made sure by they've added a notice requirement. So it's not just that the law is in place, but you, you make a great point that it requires an affirmative notification of the passengers. And, and of course, if the passenger ignores that notice and something happens so as to result in injury or death, we will see that law tested, won't we, Mitch? That's exactly, That's exactly right. And, and I have one more that I'd like to add while we're talking about vehicles and public safety. Again, I'd have to say another one that I'm very much in favor of. Uh, California is going to crack down on the misuse of the handicap placards. I saw cars. that one. And I don't know how you feel about it, but it it does upset me when I see an individual who does not have the license plate or the placard on there. In this case, a placard would be the, the little card that you hang from your rearview mirror. And we see someone pull into a handicap spot uh, thus denying access to somebody who does need that ready access to a, a retail establishment or an office building. And so the, California has a new law that, that requires the Department of Motor Vehicles to implement uh, what they're calling an audit system, which is to do quarterly audits of the applications to make sure that they're evaluating them accurately and granting them a, appropriately. Uh, it uses, their, their DMV is supposed to use Social Security Administration's death master file to cancel placards when someone passes away so they can't continue to be used by, by someone who's not originally issued that. Uh, it requires folks to apply every four years, to reapply every four years and provide more proof of who they are. And so Mitch, this one's got checks and balances and uh, issuance issues connected to it, right? Fiercer monitoring, is that right? That's exactly right. So it's, it's, it really just, it's been somewhat of a passive system where you submit an application, you get a placard, and then the state kind of goes, okay, we're done, you know, let us know if something changes. Uh, but now there's an affirmative duty by the state to continue to monitor and audit and try to keep this, you know, keep those placards in the hand of those who need them. So that, those are the those are the That's primary primary ones. Uh, Stephen, I noticed there's a, some additional what they call crime and and punishment new laws. Uh, there was a new modification in California of the concealed weapon law, which I, we've certainly talked about sealed weapon laws. Uh, we, we had a whole show and we talked about how Texas was uh, implementing new laws related to concealed weapons on campus. And now California has made a slight modification of that as well. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of uh, new laws out. Is this the school, uh, school grounds one or the, the shotgun rifle 
Right. Let's talk about the school ground ones first, because it's it's fairly uh, straightforward. Well, I guess I guess probably I shouldn't say that. Nothing related to the regulation of firearms is straightforward. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but what the new law says is that uh, no California school employee can carry a concealed weapon onto a onto a campus, and that the former rule gave school officials discretion of whether they would grant specific individuals uh, permission to have a concealed weapon. So the principal or a superintendent or the school board could have a process by which they grant individuals the right to carry a concealed weapon. And the, the state of California has taken that, that discretion away from the schools and stipulated in a law that, that a concealed weapon is not allowed on campus. Okay, got it. And then I think there's another one. That's the one that I r briefly referenced that relates to open carry uh, of unloaded shotguns and rifles. That's right. That's more of a that's more of an optional law. I guess I'm not sure exactly how to frame it, but unlike the first one we just talked about, where the state stipulated, the state now has the, the law. It took it away from local option, I guess, which will certainly uh, you know, upset individuals that believe that m most laws should be pushed to the locality, not to the state. But in this case, the state just did the opposite. So they now are granting local officials the option of whether they make it illegal within their jurisdiction for to have an open carry of unloaded shotguns and rifles. So and there, there, there is one more, Mitch, I was going to share with you still in the firearm category. And this is one that reaches the issue of assembling guns and using component parts to actually create or manufacture your own firearm. Um, and I think this one was spearheaded primarily by the Department of Justice, but I, I think it's one that goes into effect mid-year. And that is uh, greater scrutiny in terms of serial numbers being issued on component parts uh, so that there be better tracking measures in place. Yeah, I found that interesting. I, I've never assembled a firearm. I don't know anybody who, who does that, although I, I could see where that would be a, a hobby or a, a, a avocation that people would enjoy doing. Um, and I had no idea until this law came out. I never really thought about the fact that if, if you can buy a kit and construct a firearm that by definition it's not going to have a serial number because it's not been stamped by the man or registered by the manufacturer and this law closes that loophole it says that that any firearm must have a serial number so if you build your own you've got to obtain a serial number for it as well and Mitch one more in crime and punishment that I think we had on our list also, and this one relates to sexual assault cases and the handling and preservation of evidence uh, and directly related to what are known as rape kits, which are uh, kits uh, that are assembled and uh, held for evidentiary purposes that gather DNA uh, or biological fluids in cases involving alleged sexual assault. Uh, and this was, <clears throat> excuse me, this was designed to really uh, combat or address the issue of a backlog or uh, kits that have been shelved for a while and perhaps not actually examined. So in many cases in the sexual assault uh, investigation, the victim uh, is subjected to uh, a test by a sexual assault nurse, usually someone trained in the collection of uh, data, usually, uh, I'm sorry, not data, um, DNA, biological evidence. And sometimes those aren't tested. Uh, it, it, they are not tested for a number of reasons um, that may or may not be uh, justified, but this uh, new law now requires that there be justification and some reporting out on the kits that have not actually been tested. And I know that there's been support from elected district attorneys. I think uh, 
the district attorney in Alameda County, Nancy O'Malley, I think may have been one of the uh, supporters or backers of this one. And so, Stephen, tell me a little about the, uh, what, what would create the uncertainty? I could see why the district attorney would like clarity on that, because obviously they can't take any action whatsoever until that type of evidentiary preliminary work is done, right? Right. So I think, I think what's happened here, Mitch, is that in some cases there may be a, uh, a test conducted where the victim actually does uh, get uh, to, to be seen by a sexual assault nurse, but there may be events that uh, lead law enforcement to believe that a certain suspect can be ruled out. Um, it, it's got some overlap to cold cases, Mitch, okay, and, okay. and unsolved cases. So I think the, the basis and origin for this law is that the evidence that's collected is still valuable in the sense that it could help identify other suspects. In other words, not necessarily the target suspects of this active investigation. Ah, so that makes a lot more sense to me. I'm, not that it didn't make sense the first part, but, but so, for example, one, there's, there's a, a, an investigation as to a specific suspect that's resolved however it's resolved, and then a subsequent case would come up which might want access to that evidentiary information only to find out that because the first case was resolved, the the evidence was not still there, wasn't tested, was destroyed, things of that nature. Is that, is that right? I think that, that, that is accurate, Mitch. So, for instance, in an active case where there is a target suspect, if there's DNA and biological fluids collected from the victim's body and it's tested and it rules out that certain suspect, that could very often lead to no charges being filed against that suspect. However, that doesn't lessen the value of the evidence that was collected because it may well lead to another suspect. Oh, well, that, makes well, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think the spirit behind it is that uh, it's still valuable. That evidence is still valuable uh, to potentially connect to, to some other suspect. I think that's I think still it's, recognition that scientific evidence lasts a lot longer than it yeah. used to. So. Yeah, that's a good point. That's true. It absolutely does, um, Mitch. I don't. Did you have one more on the board? Because I wanted to shift to something that I think. Oh, we, I think you're going to have to go to a break first, and we're going to have to pick that next one up. Oh, I missed. I missed the clue. Okay, where are we at? Are we going out now? We're going out now. Oh gosh. Okay, you're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We will continue our discussion of new laws when we come back from this break. Don't go away. <laughs> If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder, what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. 
They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We are continuing our discussion of new laws that are set to roll out or maybe have already rolled out in uh, California in 2018. And uh, Mitch, uh, we were about to talk uh, about another law that's connected with the recording of videos. So this would be amateur video or videos that are uh, captured by use of a smartphone. Uh, and a short version of this one is that anyone who willfully recorded a video of a violent attack that was streamed on a site such as Facebook could receive additional punishment in a California court. And what this relates to, Mitch, is uh, someone who's actually involved in typically a crime of violence uh, who may have actually recorded the event, uh, of which, of course, there are cases where this has happened, which is why uh, such a law has been uh, suggested or now imposed. So what this does is it creates... Uh, additional punishment if the bad actor or the suspect uh, also videoed the event and then broadcast it. Isn't that an interesting uh, move? Because really that aspect of the law, for all intents and purposes, just didn't exist pre-smartphones, did it? And so here's a law that's moving with technology and had to consider behavior that, that prior to the technology it really didn't, didn't wasn't there because you, in theory, yes, somebody could have had a, a camera, you know, a video camera, but it was very unlikely. And now, video is ubiquitous; it's on every device that you carry. Yeah, and and that's really, uh, I think, the spirit behind this rule. I think it's uh, definite recognition of the fact that there's so many means by which we can communicate now. And if uh, an event, obviously a violent crime, uh, is allowed to be broadcast and disseminated, uh, there's now going to be a potential for extra punishment. So um, there's also, you know, I should say, Mitch, overlap here in some ways to privacy uh, rules. Uh, and that would be obviously a tort or a civil issue. But uh, if if something like that is broadcast and somebody is cast in a false light in some way I can I can see there being also some overtones related to civil law too. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a point. Uh, one of the others I think you wanted to talk about was a, a, a change that most people wouldn't notice but I think it has a, a significant impact on certain segments of our, our community and this is a, a new law that says counties can no longer charge fees to a family for various charges related to juvenile detention. And evidently prior law was that uh, the, the county could recover costs for juveniles that are either in detention under a, in a county, uh, a county facility or even the monitoring of them. 
and that the the concern was that this policy disproportionately hit low-income families. Yeah, that's right, Mitch. And and um, what I should start with on on that topic is that there is a means by which reimbursement can be sought by the state. Uh, an example would be, and I'll use one. I'll use arson as an example, just to set it up. Uh, if uh, an arson suspect who goes on to be uh, successfully convicted for the crime, uh, as part of the punishment, that person can be made to pay restitution for the services, the emergency services that were required or necessitated by virtue of the bad act. So that's a reimbursement mechanism that's been in place for a while. Uh, some reimbursement uh, standards did call or allow for reimbursement for detention and monitoring of juvenile offenders. And this new law, which has spotlighted the disparate impact, as, as you've indicated, I think there was clear empirical data that uh, much more than just anecdotal to show that there was a disparate impact on minorities and low-income families. So uh, it is now going to be prohibited. Uh, that is seeking reimbursement for housing, detention, and supervision of juveniles. Very good. Let's let's. If you don't mind, can we shift us to a few non-criminal law items? Uh, oh God, I guess. Not, oh, no, so go everybody's got to think we're nothing but a law and order state here. Of so. course, I know. Go ahead. <laughs> it's the <laughs> danger of having a, a a DA as your co-host on a show, right? Oh, come on, I can multitask. Let's go. Okay, um, bring it on. <laughs> so, under employment law, for example, there's uh, California has another phase in of an increased minimum wage so that it's going to increase minimum wage in California to $11 an hour for most businesses. There's a slight uh, modification for smaller businesses that it'll only rise to ten fifty, but that's certainly an issue that has been in the national spotlight of whether there should be a livable wage across the country. It's It's not been successfully brought in as a federal law except as it to apply as it applies to federal employees so now you have California and federal employees are impacted by that so that that's going to be uh, has some impact to many of our listeners who are small business owners and they'll have to address that yeah absolutely uh, and I'll tell you one that I was alerted to uh, you wouldn't necessarily have expected it but I went to we did a refinancing of one of the law school's buildings, and we had to file a new document related to the mortgage on the on the building. And the, the clerk in the first week of December when I took this in said, good thing you came in now. There'll be a new fee as of January 1. And in fact, there's a new $75 fee to refinance a mortgage or make other real estate transactions, and it will be charged at the clerk's office in whichever county you're in. So be a, a bit of a surprise. Uh, What's, what is the justification for that? So it's an interesting, so this is an interesting kind of approach, I guess I would say, because uh, the state's going to take money from one real estate transaction and use it to fund more low-income housing. So they're going to Take it from one transaction and put it into another type of a housing transaction. So, so that's that's their objective. Okay. Okay. Now, um, you mind if I raise another one, Mitch? That I think sure, is go right ahead. Interesting. There could be some levity connected to this one. Okay. Uh, so I, I'm tracking some of the stories, and I think it was an LA Times story that actually did briefly uh, do a story where they snapshotted some of the new laws, and the the headnote used for this one is at the water cooler. So that's my my uh -huh. warning. That's my warning. But here, here's uh, here's an interesting one, and this one relates to. Um, are you ready? Yes. Bed bugs. Oh wait a minute. Bed bugs. Bed bugs. All landlords in the state must provide information about bed bugs, how to identify them, and how to report them. Now, <laughs> the only reason that I brought up levity is that. There is a means by which you can check reports for bed bug incidents in hotels. Okay. 
Um, I don't know if it's bedbug.com or not, <laughs> but, but I do know that when I traveled quite a bit, uh, many of my colleagues would actually check out hotels and actually run that, run that search. So I thought I'd throw that out. There's an affirmative duty now on the part of landlords to provide information about bed bugs. Well, well as, as funny as it could seem, I must share with you that a niece of mine, not in California, in another state, uh, went through that issue. And it, it actually is, is not funny if you're the one trying to fight them off. They're evidently very, very difficult to eradicate. There's methods of uh, they'll come in, seal an apartment, raise the temperature to a certain amount because it supposedly kills off the eggs. But in, in this case, they had an exposed kind of raw brick wall. It was kind of a decorative wall. So it was, it had, you can imagine the cracks and crannies in a, mm -hmm. a brick wall. And it took them literally months and four or five commercial treatments before they could uh, safely say that they had eradicated the bed bugs from that apartment. Months. And it's very uh, distressing because, you know, it's, it creates bites and rashes. Uh, different people have different levels of allergies to them. So I can, I can actually see why that is an issue. Uh, and and the, uh, let me just add one other thing. Not only just getting rid of it, but every single time they were treated, they took all of their bedding, all of their soft goods, clothes, and towels, and all of that had to be taken to a commercial laundry where it could be washed at a temperature at the level that it would kill the bed bugs and their eggs. So you can just imagine of having to, to do all of that, and then they had to do it over and over again before they were successfully done. And there was, as you might guess, a disagreement as to which expenses should be reimbursed by the landlord or not. Mitch, you have successfully removed the levity. <laughs> oh, no. Sorry. <laughs> oh, I'm the buzzkill for the morning, right? So, so a, a couple other ones, Mitch, and I may actually be tripping the wire on a topic we should take on in earnest, maybe a, a single segment, and it's uh, equal right to pay. Is, is the general topic, and that's my tease for maybe a future show, but uh, there are a couple of new laws that relate to pay. Uh, one is California's equal pay law, which has been expanded to government jobs, and that's in an effort to remove any gender bias pay rates. So uh, there's going to be new laws that are uh, going into effect with the uh, ostensible goal of really balancing the playing field. Well, that's that's important, and I'm certainly glad to hear that. You know, Stephen, it's I, I think I should give us a little bit of a pat on the back here. You think that would be okay? Can I okay. give us a, a little okay. pat on the back? Go, go for it. Do you realize we've been able to have several weeks of shows indicating their critical and important and interesting legal issues that are happening outside of the Washington Beltway. You know, Mitch, that's a great point because we were kind of picking on the Beltway. Well, it wasn't really picking, but it was just landing in our lap, right? Every day and every week. Yeah. It's, it's not that there aren't important issues still going on. Obviously, there's issues related to taxes and and national security and nuclear war, uh, important, important issues without a doubt. But, but I just wanted to step back for a second as a reminder, not just to us, but to everybody, that, that we cannot let that type of, of a news saturation take us away from the recognition that in the local and state jurisdictions where we live and work, there continue to be really important and critical and fundamental issues related to the law that we should be paying attention to. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right, Mitch. And uh, this this uh, gender equality issue and workplace equality uh, topic, I, I really did mean to flag that as a worthy topic for a future show also. Let's put it on the list and do it. Well, Stephen, another great show. 
Uh, let me remind everyone as we do each week that you're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. You can hear an archive of today's program at voiceamerica.com business channel. And as we suggest to you each week as we end the show, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child, so quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now, and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandy Luis, and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. 